You can go ahead and pull out your bulletin to your worship notes if you want to follow along and take notes. Now, I need, uh, I need Ron to hold still for just one second. You got something on you here. Let me, let me help you with it off here. Let's see. Now, Ron trusted me. If I said to Ron, hold still, you've got a B on you. I want to help you out. Ron has a few options, doesn't he? Ron can get up and bolt. He can just take off away from me, right? Ron could have laughed that off. Ron could have said, I don't believe you and reached up to verify if that really was a B. Or Ron could trust and obey. And him trusting is evidenced by if I walk up to him and say, wait, 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 hold still. There's a B. Let me get it off of you. The, the trust would evidence itself by Ron holding still and going, okay. And Ron, actually, I, I got you. I wasn't really trying to get anyone, just to be honest. Um, but Ron held still. He was like, okay, you must see something I don't. Here's the deal with us. We are in a predicament, and we are told through Scripture and maybe through other people in your life, hey, you're in a predicament. Hold still. And the sting is far worse than a bee sting. It's the sting of sin. Hold still while someone else deals with the problem. And you have some similar choices. You can run from that. You can laugh that off. You can immediately get in a mindset of, I need to verify this. Or you can believe. And believing would mean responding by holding still, maybe even turning toward the person speaking to you, coming to your rescue, because clearly they see something that you don't. This morning, I've called the message this, yes, I am a Christian. In 2014, there was a lot of buzz in the media about this city of Mosul in in Iraq. And this is where uh, ISIS started coming through and marking uh, homes and businesses owned by Christians with a red painted letter pronounced noon, the equivalent of N. And it stood for the idea of this is a Nazarene. This is where a Nazarene lives. And they were marking people and businesses, not people, but businesses and homes with this red letter. Think Star of David in Nazi Germany. Nazarene was not a polite term. Nazarene was a derogatory term. In fact, they warned the people of that city, get out or you'll be fined or at worst put to death by the sword. And as we know from our own limited picture of what we get from different parts of the world, we know that they took that literally. Many of the Christians fled the city. I wanted to bring that up because as we talk in our context today as Christians, I want to guard against thinking that our problems and our successes and sort of our picture of Christianity is all that there is. I want us to sort of lift our eyes and our vision to say there are Christian brothers and sisters around the world who this passage that we're going to look at in Romans today carries a different weight and a different meaning. And the things that are at stake are a little bit weightier and different even. You know, perhaps the most looked at Bible verse on any given Sunday is John 3.16. Now, I don't know if the actual verse is read, but certainly the reference is seen many, many times at football games. Here's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. And a few verses later, Jesus says this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let me show you these passages in a little bit of a different form. Do you see that there is both an invitation and a warning in these passages? This is Jesus Christ speaking. In the words of Jesus to people, one of the most famous verses in all of America, at least the reference, is both an invitation and a warning. Tons of warning. The reality is that Jesus reveals a stark picture of our current state apart from him. Now, if you were to just start asking around and thinking with people and talking with people and looking at what is said, the opinions of Jesus' assessment of our current state apart from him are varied. Would you agree with that? Let's take a look at just a couple. Here's one. George Clooney said this, I don't believe in heaven and hell. I don't know if I believe in God. All I know is that as individual, as an individual, I won't allow this life, the only thing I know to exist, to be wasted. Now, he went on to describe sort of his ideal scenario. He said, the way you want to do it is like Cary Grant. Have a successful career, and then when you decide you're looking too old, leave the movies and never look back. Then at 80 years old, have a stroke and drop dead. That's perfect. Now, I don't know what exact age he said this, but I bet you anything, the closer he gets to 80, the more he's thinking, I don't know, let's, let's make it 90. Right? He's going to move that, that number up a little bit. George is walking by sight because he doesn't want to waste this life. A really, really common sentiment. Here's the thing with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It offends this intuition, doesn't it? You see, the gospel is news, and it's both good news and bad news. It's a warning and an invitation. Today's a celebration of how this little light of the gospel is powerful. And remember that kid's song, This Little Light of Mine? I'm going to let it shine, right? And to not cover it up. It's a celebration of the gospel. A quick review, if you missed last week, Paul's view of the gospel, if you look at a few verses before what we're going to look at this morning in chapter 1, is that he was obligated to share and that he was eager to share. Two words we don't often put together. I'm eagerly obligated to do this. And he's going to add one more this morning. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, it says. For it is the power of salvation. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We're going to look at two verses this morning because they're pretty power-packed. You'd probably agree that most people you come across, if you are a Christian and you're talking about your faith, most people trip over Jesus. Most people scoff at the Savior. And the reality is, you will be tempted to do exactly the same thing. You will be slowly pulled in a direction to have those same sort of sentiments. So the question is why? Like, why are people upset over Jesus? To get at that, we're going to play the gospel is blank, so it offends the blank game. You ready? Here's how it goes. You can jot these down if you want. 
But the gospel is free and undeserved. And so this offends people who are moral, who are trying to live an upright life. It offends the religious, who are trying to say, look, I'm doing all that I can. I'm pouring all my energy into doing the right thing. And then the gospel comes along and says, hey, this is free and undeserved. You didn't, you didn't earn this. Secondly, hope you have a lot of ink in your pens because these are big words. The gospel is substitutionary and propitiatory. Here's what it means. Jesus died for us. Have you heard that before? The fact that Jesus died for us means that he was substitutionary. He was in our place. Here's the point. We were so wicked that only the Son of God could come and appease God's wrath and anger at our sin. So those who have the sentiment that we're basically good, these are people without kids, right? Because when you have a beautiful newborn child and you realize I didn't teach them to do anything wrong at all and yet here they just do stuff wrong and you think back on your own life and you go, parents of mine who are now gray-haired, was I like this? And they say, yes, and on and on and on it goes. But the basically good crowd is deeply offended to say that Jesus would have to die. Why would it have to do something so horrible when we're basically good? Here's a third one. Salvation is in no other name but Jesus. This offends the any nice person anywhere can find God in his own way crowd, right? Have you heard of this one? I mean, this is really, really common. You're a Christian. That's really good for you. I don't want to argue about your Christian faith, but I have my way to God and my path to God and my definition of God. We don't really live this way anywhere else in life. You go to the bank and try that. That's a nice balance that you're telling me. But I have a different balance in my savings account. And so I'd like to withdraw that amount. They will look at you and eventually escort you out with security. Um, Here's the fourth one. The gospel is accomplished by suffering and serving. Which means that those who are called to come after Jesus are going to suffer and they are called to serve. Who does this offend? It offends people who want an easy, comfortable, safe life. That's terrifying. It also offends those who buy into the economy system of our culture of power and position. So Easy Street and Wall Street. It offends both of those crowds. Because Jesus was and is the suffering servant. And he calls us to come after him Catch this, and die so that we could live the kingdom life. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation for everyone who believes. I want to just kind of look at this passage of scripture in four words. And the first word, if you're taking notes, is ashamed. As in, don't be ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is God's power and God's plan on display. Now, any good biblical interpreter would have to understand this, that some background work has to go on, because as modern readers in San Jose, California, we don't hear things in Romans the same way that people would hear them in another era and another location. Make sense? 
So you have to kind of get at a little bit of things as to what's what's going on, because we would hear certain words and immediately attribute modern sensibility to that, and we have to get at what would the original author have intended and what would the original listeners have heard automatically in the text without any further explanation. So let me just say this. With this word ashamed, shame and honor, think about this. Some of you come from cultures. Shame and honor dominate certain cultures today in this world. They're different than American. American culture generally isn't a shame-honor culture. But in certain cultures today, that's that's prevalent. And certainly, in this era of when Romans was written, this was the dominant thing. So your social credit score had everything to do with shame and honor. With that being said, can you imagine how Paul, coming into a big, sophisticated, center-of-the-Gentile-world city like Rome would struggle to proclaim and preach a peasant Jewish laborer who was put to death in the most humiliating of ways, crucifixion, invented by the Romans, in the insignificant far reaches of an empire that's starting to just sort of dominate the world. And not only is he saying that this Jesus is meaningful to life, he is proclaiming that he's mandatory, he's essential for life. And he's trusting him and preaching him as the very son of God. Do you see the total inverted power structure? Shame and honor. Do you see why Paul is saying to Christians then, it it applies to us now but in different ways, don't be ashamed of this. Paul doesn't shy away from the truth. He doesn't back down and neither should we. Think about this. Acceptance by the masses doesn't make something true. Would you agree with that? I mean, if everyone just agrees to it, it must be true, right? Wrong! Acceptance by the masses doesn't make something true. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation for everyone who believes. You know, Paul nails what the opposition is going to look like for us because he experienced it. He wrote this in 1 Corinthians 1.23. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. What were the Jews clinging to? Jews cling to bloodline. We're sons of Abraham, right? I mean, that's their, that's their lifeline. What do the Greeks cling to? They cling to knowledge. The philosophers. How about Romans? Romans clung to power. Jesus comes along and the message and life of Jesus Christ reveals all three of those things. Bloodline, knowledge, and power as shifting sand foundations. He comes along and says, those are all sand foundations. I'm the rock. Build your life on me. Jesus sent out his disciples with a message that has always and will always collide with cultural sensibilities. It's true in the first century. It's absolutely true today. Here's a question for me. Here's a question for you. Will you put to death your hunger to fit the cross of Christ into a cultural mold that won't offend anyone. If that's you, that you just you just really want to be nice and not offend people, and you keep trying to shove Jesus, package Jesus, shove the cross into some kind of package that will stop offending people, my question to you is, will you let that go by the wayside? Will you put that to death? Because Jesus, from day one, has handed you a messenger and said, go out and proclaim this message. He's given you a message that will offend culture. 
The gospel is a little bit like water. The content must never be altered or else it ceases to be life-giving. And yet we just sang the name Emmanuel. What is the word, what does the name Emmanuel mean? God with us, right? So the content of the gospel is H2O. Don't you dare mess with H2O. But God models taking the message and putting it into a container that we understand in the form of a little baby that grew into a man and became human. And we get to see and interact with what that looks like. How about the Apostle Paul who wrote Romans? Paul so loved the world that he became all things to all varieties of people. What did Paul do when he was with the philosophers? He debated, right? He debated them and he used their own quotes from their own philosophers. He studied their culture and he complimented what he could. I see that you're religious in every way. But what you worship that's unknown, I've come here to let you know, he's known. What did he do when he when he was with the Jewish people? He reviewed Jewish history. Why? Because that's important to a Jew. We're clinging to our bloodline. And so Paul went there and he reviewed history because that's what spoke to them. Here's the action for us, church. We take the content of the gospel. We get so clear on what H2O is. And then wildly, enthusiastically, and creatively under the Spirit's control, we take that water and we put it into any and all packaging that we can. Nalgene, cool. We'll put it in that. Hydro flask, go. Sippy cup, yes. Dixie cup, yes. We don't change the water. But we take the container and we go out into the world and figure out what's going to speak to you. What's going to allow you to get the water. Imagine you stumble across someone who is thirsty. They're parched. I mean, they look like they're dying of thirst. And you are utterly convinced, because you do a lot of hiking and you're just alive, that water is life-giving to this person. I mean, really imagine this. You're out there. Here's what you're not tempted to do. You're not tempted to improve on water, right? You don't start trying to mess with it and figure out a different thing. You have water in your possession. You simply offer it to the person. Secondly, you would never be ashamed to to take your water and offer it to a person dying of thirst, would you? Does that even enter your mind? Conversely, you would be like Paul, who is, catch this, enthusiastically obligated to give the water. Do you see that? We've We've been given living water. Let us not be tempted to take the gospel, mold it, shape it, change it, soften it, and help God with his plan. Let's be committed to offering undiluted, pure water to people. And secondly, like people dying of thirst, let's not go in with a shame mentality. I don't know if they really want this or not, or if they need this or not. If we're utterly convinced that water will save, then we offer it unashamedly, and we're not tempted to alter the contents. And why be ashamed? For it is the power of God for salvation. Second word, power. Uh, The late evangelist, D.L. Moody, commented that the gospel is like a lion. All the preacher has to do is open the door of the cage and then get out of the way. The gospel will do the rest. Uh, This word for power is, is dunamis in the Greek. And it's the same word we get the word dynamite from. And you kind of think about the explosive, sort of transformative nature of the gospel. And that's the picture being given to us. Now, if you have regularly shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with people over some period of time, 
then you already know this. I don't need to convince you of this. You already know the explosive, transformative power of the gospel. And over time, gradually, it begins to wean you from trusting in certain things. It begins to wean you from needing to have the best arguments, doesn't it? It begins to wean you from, from having that right personality and reading the situation right and, and doing it just so. It begins to wean you from trying to be relevant. Now, remember what I just said about Paul? Remember what I just said about God in sending Jesus? It doesn't mean we just blindly go out barfing the gospel on everyone without any consideration of context. But what we know is this. The power of salvation doesn't rest in the messenger. It rests in the message. So here's a little thing to kind of grab and go with you. You're sharing with someone. You feel like God's just opening a door to just be there with them. Get to the gospel. Get to the gospel. I, I hope you've experienced this. I have talked around with people, and finally I'm like, I, I can't even find an open door. I'm just going to share with them. Can I just share with you the, the I mean, we're talking all, all over the place, you know, this. I, can I just share with you the crux of the matter? This is, this is the thing that Christianity has, has found. Can I just share that one thing with you? It'll just take a couple of minutes. And I just shared the gospel. I have watched that utterly transform the conversation, and people bend the knee and be ready. I want to receive that. I want in on that. And I just go, why didn't I do that 40 minutes ago? So listen, get to the gospel. You, you begin to pray and say, God, would you, would you help me get to the gospel? Would you help me to trust that the message is powerful? Now, um, there's power in the gospel, and, and it's a seemingly weak message. Um, just for fun at our house, and it's really cool that she happens to be here, um, but just for fun at our house, we had a pepper-eating challenge one time, and um, and Kayla Thomas, who is sitting in our very midst, normally down off at school, welcome Kayla, good to see you again, happy Thanksgiving, Kayla was given a, a, a golden cayenne pepper, is that right? Yeah, that's what it was. So she got to eat a golden cayenne pepper, and my son Curran really wanted to eat a ghost pepper which was grown in Clink's garden. It's like the second hottest pepper in the world, and we had 911 on speed dial. So we had this pepper-eating contest in our house, and we videotaped it, and it was really fun, actually, to watch Kayla's reaction um, physically and emotionally and spiritually to this whole ordeal. It was just not that pleasant, and I think I have her on video as saying she'll never do that again. Now, the gospel is a little bit like those peppers. If you've never been into a pepper and you were to just be handed one, it's rather unimpressive. You would see it on a, on a line of other items and just not think that much of it. Yet if you've ever experienced one, you know that its power isn't up to you and your delivery. So when I handed these peppers to Kayla and Curran, it, I didn't worry about, well, I don't, I'm not really sure why they're so hot or why they're causing your veins to bulge and your eyes to water uncontrollably. I don't know why, why that is. I don't know enough, and so I guess I can't give you the pepper. I didn't worry about any of that. I don't understand peppers much. And if you asked me to give an apologetic for peppers, I'd say, I don't know, just bite one. Right? That's all I would do. I would hand you the pepper and invite you to just bite into the pepper. Where's the power of the pepper? It's in biting it, right? The second you bite into that thing and start to chew, I mean, again, I have it on video. It's quite powerful to watch what goes on. The gospel is similar to that. It is powerful apart from me. 
Can I tell you what I prayed last night? I prayed, God, we are going to be talking about the gospel, which we do every week on some level, but would you just allow your power to work in people and thank you that it's apart from me that its powerful message is going to take root in effect. Man, if you get to the gospel, there's power. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. While you're turning there, let me highlight a few other places Paul talked about this. 1 Corinthians 1.17 For Christ did not send me, Paul, to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. He didn't try to win people with his exceptional skill, although he was a brilliant man and acclimated his methods. 1 Thessalonians 1.5 says, Because... Our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power. If you're taking notes, jot down Colossians 1. Read the first half of Colossians 1. In Colossians 1, he says this, that this gospel, this message, this pepper that you've bit into, it's taking root and advancing in all the world, just as it did amongst you. So these stories of transformation in marriages and family, in fathers and mothers and sons and daughters being reunited, it's taking root in other parts and it's advancing just as it did in you. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 1, here's what he says. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Do you hear sort of past, present, future in that, in that language? If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And then in verse 3, he goes on to state in simple, clear terms some of what the gospel is. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared. And then he lists Cephas and the twelve and on and on. And his point there is he had a bodily, physical resurrection. He's alive. That's the gospel. Now, power players in our world don't recognize the gospel as powerful. Funny man Jim Carrey, many of us have enjoyed his immense talent says this, I've always been big about faith. Everything in my life has happened for a good reason. Generally, when I'm on the bean, man, it's like the blessings just come one after another like rain. It's unbelievable. You know, Jim is right. The blessings in his life are unbelievable, and they come just like rain. And they're undeserved. Jesus, Sermon on the Mount, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. For he makes his sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends his rain on the just and the unjust. It's powerful out of Jim's own mouth. A man who doesn't profess Jesus Christ. A man who, like all of us, was born in sin and is living his life in rebellion to God is blessed by God just like rain. He's accurate. He goes on to say this, I've studied a lot of things and basically I don't know what God is but I know that he's at least an energy that rules all that walks the earth. And I really think there are laws. There are laws. And maybe they're within us. I don't know what it is, but I call that God too. Do you hear how much Jim is right on this? 
He's right on a lot of points. God is powerful. He calls him an energy. We're using the word power in this passage. And he rules all that walks the planet. And there are laws. And they are within us. But here's where he gets it wrong. The laws aren't God. The laws point us to a lawgiver. God isn't a what, as Jim is sort of suggesting. God is a who. And God is knowable in the person of Jesus Christ. Listen to Jesus' own words. I and the Father are one. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation for everyone who believes. Third word I want you to write down is belief. Gospel saves those who believe, not those who behave. I don't know what's broken in your life, but I want you to know I'm sorry. I really am. And I'm sorry, and I can say that with deep conviction, because I have brokenness in my life. I have brokenness in my family. I have brokenness in my soul. So I can really identify. It's, it's wide and varied in here what's broken, isn't there? But here we are together in a place of worship, seeking and savoring salvation. Let me tell you what salvation does. Salvation brings wholeness. Salvation is sort of an umbrella term that brings together all aspects of deliverance, justification, redemption, reconciliation, sanctification, the process of growing in holiness, glorification. These all describe different aspects of salvation. You know what sin does? It breaks things. Sin breaks trusts and relationships and bodies and creation and ideas and ideals. And some of what we suffer with is just looking back on what could have been. Looking back on what used to be. And there could be regret. There could be shame. There could be a host of emotions that kind of come in the wake of that. Sin breaks things. Salvation makes things whole by the power of God. You know, the gospel is not announcing the good news that all are safe because of what Jesus did. Hear this, hear this little nuance because it's very important. The gospel does not announce the good news that everyone is safe because of what Jesus did. That's a term called universalism. If you are a practicing universalist, then here's what you believe. You believe that Jesus' death on the cross covers everyone's sin without any kind of response whatsoever. I would say this, and I mean this with all respect. I'm not trying to take a cheap shot at someone who's a universalist. I would say this. I don't think most universalists genuinely read their Bible. And let's not take the whole Bible, which is kind of a lot. Let's narrow it down to just Jesus. If you just read the red words in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, can you possibly logically arrive at a universalist point of view? Why don't we narrow it even further? I opened with John 3, 16, 17, and verse 36. Three verses where Jesus says, some are condemned and under God's wrath right now, and some aren't. What's the dividing line? What is it? Belief. The gospel saves those 
who believe. Martin Luther said this, it's not good news for a sinner to learn that God is just, is it? I mean, that's terrible news. That means you will get what you deserve. That in and of itself is not the good news. So what are we to believe in a nutshell that Jesus is the Messiah and forgives our sin? People often say of Christians, well, that's just blind faith. It's it's not blind faith. Any more than a skydiver jumps out of a plane isn't blind faith. The person jumping out of a plane that's running perfectly fine is doing so because he has believed in a parachute. Right? He believes in the fact that he's going to pull a cord at some point, that puppy's going to open up, and he's not going to become a pancake. So a Christian is taking a step of faith, and it's not blind belief, but trust in action. Do you notice that Paul mentions nothing of cleaning up our act or vowing to try harder? Write this down, please. Salvation is for those who believe, not for those who, be- who behave. I think if there was one misconception about the gospel that is most prevalent and most damaging, it's this point right here. Salvation is for those who believe, not for those who behave. That's why since day one we say this over and over and over again. Come as you are to Neighborhood Bible Church. This applies to any gospel preaching church. Come as you are to church. Come as you are to Jesus. Don't wait until you're behaving. Don't wait until you get cleaned up. Don't wait until you have a track record of trying harder. You'll never come. Come as you are. Salvation's for those who believe, not for those who behave. In fact, any sense of cleanup doesn't happen apart from belief. Now, there are some really important things that are not part of and tied to salvation. Baptism, for, for instance. Baptism is the first step of obedience. We see this over and over in the, in the book of Acts. People believed and were baptized. People believed and said, what should I do? Repent and be baptized. Baptism is this public statement that says, I'm not ashamed of this. I'm going public with my trust. I'm on Jesus' team now. But do you notice that baptism isn't mentioned? Here's another thing that's not mentioned. Church membership. We believe church membership is really, really, really important. In the Old Testament, we see people that covenanted together and had a physical sign of circumcision and other rites and and rituals. And in the New Testament, we have things like baptism. We say to covenant together with the local church. Not mentioned here. How about community groups? That's one of our only main programs apart from Sunday morning. We think they're super, super important that you get together and fellowship with other believers and grow, open the scriptures, and pray for them. They're not mentioned here. How about your personal quiet time, your devotions, a carved-out time every single day or most days to say, God, this is carved-out time to seek your face, to hear from you, to pray, to open your word and begin to let that saturate my mind and my will and my imagination. Super important for a Christian, not mentioned here. Why? Because none of those are essential to salvation. None of those are crucial. Faith is crucial. Belief is crucial. Now, I believe that once you're saved, Jesus will tell you to engage in and grow in some of the things that I just mentioned. But those aren't essential for salvation. 
This saving power of the gospel is both boundless and bound. Let me tell you what I mean. It's available to one and all, to Jews, to Greeks, to Gentiles. In Jesus' opening invitation, whoever believes, he says that a few times, whoever. So the gospel is boundless on the one hand. It's open to all. And yet the gospel is bound, and here's how it's bound. It's bound to those who believe. If it was just boundless, then a universalist position is the one I would have to take. It's just, it's just out there for everyone. But it's bound because it's for those who believe. Go back to a parachute. It's for those who actually strap it on and take the jump. That's who gets saved by the parachute. Now, you may recognize this guy, Lance Armstrong, the one-time hero of U.S. cycling, has expressed his doubts about a higher power many, many times. Got sick from cancer, almost died. Boldly proclaimed, it wasn't God that healed me, it was science, medicine, and exceptional doctors and my own will. Many times saying there's doubts for him about a higher power. Often citing his belief that he doesn't need religion to be a good person. And the person writing this said, oddly, he never admitted to not needing steroids to be a good cyclist. So you kind of take, you know, you kind of take that with, with what it is. Philippians 3.9, here's what Lance Armstrong would have a real hard time with. A righteousness that's not his own. Lance Armstrong's a self-made man. Philippians 3.9, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Last word I want you to jot down is the word faith. Most scholars agree that NIV nailed this translation in verse 17 when they put it this way, by faith from first to last. It's sort of a complex term in Greek, and there's all kinds of fun, interesting stuff you can read up on and go, what does that mean? How does that word mean this? But by faith from first to last. And he closed off 17 saying that the righteous will live by faith. You know, Paul was convinced that we must believe and walk by faith. He was convinced there was something to do, and that's why he gave his life for this. His last dying breath was trying to convince people and pass the message on. This has been done for you. This is good news. There's nothing else you have to do except grab hold of it and believe. A different Paul sees things a little differently. Here's what Paul Simon said in Rolling Stone. The only thing that God requires from us is to enjoy life and love. It doesn't matter if you accomplish anything. You don't have to do anything but appreciate that you're alive. And love. That's the whole point. It seems like he keeps sort of tacking on love because he's a child of the 60s. He's like, oh yeah, love also. Like, Let's tack that on. It's a really important question. What does God require of you? Is it just that I just appreciate that I'm alive and love? That's what Paul Simon's getting at. Paul the Apostle gave his life to communicate a different message. What did Jesus demand of his followers? Nothing. He was a person of peace. Wrong. Jesus made many demands of his followers. You know what a demand is? It's a requirement. Non-optional. You know what the number one thing he demanded of his followers was this? Believe me. Believe me. You don't believe me. You don't pass go. You don't continue the journey at all. It all begins. The new birth begins simply with this. Hey, believe me. Take me at my word. 
Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Here's what faith is. Faith is the lifeline between God and sinner. We don't produce the lifeline. We simply grab hold of the lifeline. That's our only role in the saving process. It does no good to simply have knowledge of it. You must take hold and keep hold of it. You know, we use this terminology sometimes in in Christianity where we say this. Hey, when were you saved? Ever heard that before? When were you saved? Oh, it was back in 74. Holy Graham, I walked the aisle. Here's what that indicates. That indicates that salvation was something that happened way back in 74 and possibly doesn't have relevance uh, anymore beyond that. The Bible knows nothing of that. Now, the Bible says that once you're saved, that, that you're secure in that. However, we are to hold on to this. We are to believe and have faith and then to walk by faith. So holding on is what we're doing. Faith from first to last. I want to invite the band up, and as I do, I want to walk through this little thing we've been doing each time at the close of this pa- of these passages, and that is this. What are things that I'm supposed to do out of this passage, and what are things that God does? And let me not get those confused. Write these things down. Number one, trust the, go- trust the gospel. If you're in the habit of trying to improve the gospel, stop it. Repent. Figure out the container, but don't mess with H2O. That's been settled. Can I just tell you, part of Black Friday's appeal is the hunger for the new. We are all hungry for the new. You get that brand new, you know, electronic, whatever, TV or whatever, and then your neighbor gets the next newest one five minutes later, right? Ah! I got to leapfrog and get him. We're the same way with messages. We always want something new. This is why a lot of books and blogs go crazy is because people are hungry for that secret. Here's a do. Maybe some of you need to take the step of baptism. Maybe when you think about, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, you ought to ask yourself this question. Why am I ashamed to take this step of obedience that Jesus modeled for us and he packaged it right in the Great Commission? Go and make disciples of all nations. Then do what? Baptize them. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teach them to observe all I've commanded you. To live by faith. To walk by faith. Here's the second thing. The second thing is to share unashamedly, enthusiastically, and expectantly. You know what the opposite of ashamed is? It's not willingly. It's enthusiastically. Willingly is, uh, I guess I will because I have to. Enthusiastically is I will because I get to. Being super excited. Um, here's what I want you to look at. In the back is the San Francisco Homeless Outreach. Tons of stuff back there that will be gone by tonight. Some of you need to come with us. You've never been to San Francisco um, late at night handing out clothes to homeless people. That's a big risk for you. It's a big step outside of your comfort zone. Year after year, we've done it. You've come and brought things. Maybe tonight's the night. You need to come and physically be with people, lay hands on people. Remember what happened when Jesus told the story And they said, Jesus, we've invited all of our friends. We've invited kind of our circles of of friendships to the feast. What was Jesus' advice to them? What was his command to them? Go to the highways and byways. 
Maybe you have shared unashamedly and expectantly with everyone you know. Maybe tonight is the night to say, I want to invite people to the feast. I want to invite people to Jesus that are on the highways and byways. That's what tonight is about. When we are walking the streets, laying hands on and learning the names of homeless people and saying there is amazing news that's already been done, you just need to grab hold in faith, that's inviting them to the feast. Here's the third thing. Keep holding on in faith. Walk by faith and not by sight. When he quotes in in verse 17 that the righteous will live by faith, he's quoting an old prophet named Habakkuk. This has been God's plan all along. You want to see an incredible example of a person persevering and not being ashamed of doing God's plan? Go read up on Noah. How many years was Noah unashamed and, and persevering in doing what God told him to do? Decade after decade. Where's the rain, Noah? That's a really big boat. There he was, unashamedly walking the path God had for him. That's what we do. What does God do? God provides the power and the plan. Aren't you thrilled about about this? You don't have to drum up the power. You don't have to create the plan. You just hand the gospel to people. This is true of believers. It's true of those yet to believe. Here's number two. God reveals himself and his plan in his timing and in his way. Here's the gist of that. We're the messengers, not the messiahs. You might share and fumble and bumble your way through the gospel and the person's like, I want that. I want in on that. They receive Christ and their life is utterly transformed. And six months later you go, wow, that person's a different person. You may have given your best, most inspired, passionate sharing of the gospel to someone. And you go, I kind of nailed that one. Nothing. Nothing at all. They just are unmoved by it. It's up to God to save. It's up to us to proclaim. Lastly is this. God's role is to save. And he saves to the uttermost. What that means is he saves completely and he saves eternally. Let me leave you with a thrilling and hopeful truth. Here it is. Philippians 1.6 And I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Pray with me. God, we thank you that our faith isn't what saves. I thank you, God, this morning that the measure of our faith, the size of our faith, isn't the important part, but in who we've placed our trust. God, I pray this morning really is a celebration, a reminder. Those of us who've taken hold in faith would savor our relationship, what we have in you through the gospel. And God, for those this morning who've never taken a step of faith, would this morning be, would today be the day of salvation? I understand now my role is to grab hold in faith. I still have questions. I still have my doubts. But I believe Jesus. I take him at his word. And I cross the line to be his follower and give him control. We thank you, God, that in a moment, the new birth comes in. We're washed clean. We are claimed forever as your son, forever as your daughter, with all the inheritance and rich blessing and relationship that comes with that. In Jesus' name, amen.